Section 4 of Trips to the Moon. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Ralph Snelson. Trips to the Moon by Lucian of Somosita. Translated by Thomas Franklin. Section 4. The True History. Preface and Book 1. Lucian's true history is, as the author himself acknowledges in the preface to it, a collection of ingenious lies, calculated principally to amuse the reader, not without several allusions, as he informs us, to the works of ancient poets, historians, and philosophers, as well as, most probably, the performances of contemporary writers, whose absurdities are either obliquely glanced at, or openly ridiculed and exposed. We cannot but lament that the humor of the greatest part of these allusions must be lost to us, the works themselves being long since buried in oblivion. Lucian's true history, therefore, like the Duke of Buckingham's rehearsal, cannot be half so agreeable as when it was first written. There is, however, enough remaining to secure it from contempt. The vein of rich fancy and wildness of a luxuriant imagination which run through the whole sufficiently point out the author as a man of uncommon genius and invention. The reader will easily perceive that Bergerac, Swift, and other writers have read this work of Lucian's, and are much indebted to him for it. Preface As athletics of all kinds hold it necessary, not only to prepare the body by exercise and discipline, but sometimes to give it proper relaxation which they esteem no less requisite so do I think it highly necessary also for men of letters, after their severer studies, to relax a little, that they may return to them with the greater pleasure and alacrity, and for this purpose there is no better repose than that which arises from the reading of such books as not only by their humor and pleasantry may entertain them, but convey at the same time some useful instruction, both which I flatter myself the reader will meet with in following the history for he will not only be pleased with the novelty of the plan, and the variety of lies which I have told with an air of truth, but with the tacit allusions so frequently made, not, I trust, without some degree of humor, to our ancient poets, historians, and philosophers, who have told us some most miraculous and incredible stories, and which I should have pointed out to you, but that I thought they would be sufficiently visible on the perusal. Tessius the Snidian, son of Tessiochus, wrote an account of India, and of things there, which he never saw himself, nor heard from anybody else. Iambulus also has acquainted us with many wonders, which he met with in the great sea, and which everybody knew to be absolute falsehoods. The work, however, was not unentertaining. Besides these, many others have likewise presented us with their own travels and peregrinations where they tell us of wondrous large beasts, savage men, and unheard-of ways of living. The great leader and master of all this, Rodamontade, is Homer's Ulysses, who talks to Alcinius about the winds pent up in bags, man-eaters and one-eyed cyclops, wild men, creatures with many heads, several of his companions turned into beasts by enchantment, and a thousand things of this kind which he related to the ignorant and credulous Phaeacians. These notwithstanding, I cannot think much to blame for their falsehoods, 
seeing that the custom has been sometimes authorized, even by the pretenders to philosophy. I only wonder that they should ever expect to be believed, being, however, myself incited by a ridiculous vanity, with the desire of transmitting something to posterity, that I may not be the only man who doth not indulge himself in the liberty of fiction, as I could not relate anything true, for I know of nothing at present worthy to be recorded, I turn my thoughts towards falsehood, a species of it, however, much more excusable than that of others, as I shall at least say one thing true, when I tell you that I lie and shall hope to escape the general censure by acknowledging that I mean to speak not a word of truth throughout. Know ye, therefore, that I am going to write about what I never saw myself, nor experienced, nor so much as heard from anybody else, and what is more, of such things as neither are nor ever can be. I give my readers warning, therefore, not to believe me. Once upon a time, then, I set sail from the pillars of Hercules, and getting into the western ocean set off with a favorable wind. The cause of my peregrination was no more than a certain impatience of mind and thirst after novelty, with a desire of knowing where the sea ended, and what kind of men inhabited the several shores of it. For this purpose I laid in a large stock of provisions, and as much water as I thought necessary, taking along with me fifty companions of the same mind as myself. I prepared withal a number of arms, with a skilful pilot, whom we hired at a considerable expense, and made our ship, for it was a pinnace, as tight as we could in case of a long and dangerous voyage. We sailed on with a prosperous gale for a day and a night, but being still in sight of land did not make any great way. The next day, however, at sunrising, the wind springing up, the waves ran high, it grew dark, and we could not unfurl a sail. We gave ourselves up to the winds and waves, and were tossed about in a storm, which raged with great fury for three score and nineteen days. But on the eightieth the sun shone bright, and we saw not far from us an island, high and woody, with the sea round it quite calm and placid, for the storm was over. We landed, got out, and, happy to escape from our troubles, laid ourselves down on the ground for some time, after which we arose, and choosing out thirty of our company to take care of the vessel, I remained on shore with the other twenty, in order to take a view of the interior part of the island. About three stadia from the sea, as we passed through a wood, we found a pillar of brass, with a Greek inscription on it, the characters almost effaced. We could make out, however, these words. Thus far came Hercules and Bacchus. Near it were the marks of two footsteps on a rock. One of them measured about an acre, the other something less. The smaller one appeared to me to be that of Bacchus, the larger that of Hercules. We paid our adorations to the deities and proceeded. We had not got far before we met with a river, which seemed exactly to resemble wine, particularly that of Caius. It was of a vast extent, and in many places navigable. This circumstance induced us to give more credit to the inscription on the pillar, when we perceived such visible marks of Bacchus's presence here. As I had a mind to know whence this river sprung, I went back to the place from which it seemed to arise but could not trace the spring. 
I found, however, several large vines full of grapes. At the root of every one the wine flowed in great abundance, and from them I suppose the river was collected. We saw a great quantity of fish in it, which were extremely like wine, both in taste and color, and after we had taken and eaten a good many of them, we found ourselves intoxicated, and when we cut them up observed that they were full of grape-stones. It occurred to us afterwards that we should have mixed them with some water-fish, as by themselves they tasted rather too strong of the wine. We passed the river in a part of it which was fordable, and a little farther on met with a most wonderful species of vine. The bottoms of them that touched the earth were green and thick, and all the upper part most beautiful women, with the limbs perfect from the waist, only that from the tops of the fingers branches sprung out full of grapes, just as Daphne is represented as turned into a tree when Apollo laid hold on her. The head likewise, instead of hair, they had leaves and tendrils, when we came up to them they addressed us some in the lydian tongue some in the indian but most of them in greek they would not suffer us to taste their grapes but when anybody attempted it cried out as if they were hurt we left them and returned to our companions in the ship we then took our casks filled some of them with water and some with wine from the river slept one night on shore and the next morning set sail the wind being very moderate about noon, the island being now out of sight, on a sudden a most violent whirlwind arose, and carried the ship above three thousand stadia, lifting it up above the water, from whence it did not let us down again into the seas, but kept us suspended in mid-air. In this manner we hung for seven days and nights, and on the eighth beheld a large tract of land, like an island, round, shining, and remarkably full of light. We got on shore, and found on examination that it was cultivated and full of inhabitants, though we could not then see any of them. As night came on, other islands appeared, some large, others small, and of a fiery color. There was also below these another land with seas, woods, mountains, and cities in it, and this we took to be our native country. As we were advancing forwards, we were seized on a sudden by the Hippogypi, for so it seems they were called by the inhabitants. These Hippogypi are men carried upon vultures, which they ride as we do horses. These vultures have each three heads, and are immensely large. You may judge of their size when I tell you that one of their feathers is bigger than the mast of a ship. The Hippogypi have orders, it seems, to fly round the kingdom and if they find any stranger to bring him to the king. They took us, therefore, and carried us before him. As soon as he saw us, he guessed by our garb what we were. "'You are Grecians,' said he. "'Are you not?' We told him we were. "'And how,' added he, "'got ye hither through the air?' We told him everything that had happened to us, and he in return related to us his own history, and informed us that he also was a man, that his name was Endymion, that he had been taken away from our earth in his sleep, and brought to this place where he reigned as sovereign. That spot, he told us, which now looked like a moon to us, was the earth. He desired us withal not to make ourselves uneasy, for that we should soon have everything we wanted. 
If I succeed, said he, in the war which I am now engaged in against the inhabitants of the sun, you will be very happy here. We asked him then what enemies he had, and what the quarrel was about. Phaeton, he replied, who is king of the sun, for that is inhabited as well as the moon, has been at war with us for some time past. The foundation of it was this. I had formerly an intention of sending some of the poorest of my subjects to establish a colony in Lucifer, which was uninhabited. But Phaeton, out of envy, put a stop to it, by opposing me in the midway with his hippomermeses, we were overcome and desisted, our forces at that time being unequal to theirs. I have now, however, resolved to renew the war and fix my colony. If you have a mind, you shall accompany us in the expedition. I will furnish you every one with a royal vulture and other accoutrements. We shall set out to-morrow. With all my heart, said I, whenever you please. We stayed, however, and supped with him, and rising early the next day proceeded with the army, when the spies gave us notice that the enemy was approaching. The army consisted of a hundred thousand, besides the scouts and engineers, together with the auxiliaries, amongst whom were eighty thousand hippogypi, and twenty thousand who were mounted on the lochanoptery. These are very large birds, whose feathers are of a kind of herb, and whose wings look like lettuces. Next to these stood the Syncroboli and the Scorodomachi. Our allies from the north were three thousand Silitoxita and five thousand Anamodromi. The former take their names from the fleas which they ride upon, every flea being as big as twelve elephants. The latter are foot soldiers and are carried about in the air without wings in this manner. They have large gowns hanging down to their feet. These they tuck up and spread in a form of a sail, and the wind drives them about like so many boats. In the battle they generally wear targets. It was reported that seventy thousand Strathobulani from the stars over Cappadocia were to be there, together with five thousand Hippogerani. These I did not see, for they never came. I shall not attempt, therefore, to describe them. Of these, however, most wonderful things were related. Such were the forces of Endymion. Their arms were all alike. Their helmets were made of beans, for they have beans there of a prodigious size and strength, and their scaly breastplates of lupins sewed together, for the skins of their lupins are like a horn and impenetrable their shields and swords, the same as our own. The army ranged themselves in this manner. The right wing was formed by the Hippogypi with the king, and round him his chosen band to protect him, amongst which we were admitted. On the left were the Lochanoptery, the auxiliaries in the middle, the foot were in all about sixty thousand myriads. They have spiders, you must know, in this country, in infinite numbers, and of pretty large dimensions, each of them being as big as one of the islands of the Cyclades. These were ordered to cover the air from the moon quite to the morning star. This being immediately done, and the field of battle prepared, the infantry was drawn up under the command of Nestirion, the son of Eudianus, 
The left wing of the enemy, which was commanded by Phaeton himself, consisted of the Hippomyrmaces. These are large birds and resemble our ants, except with regard to size, the largest of them covering two acres. These fight with their horns and were in number about fifty thousand. In the right wing were the Aeroconopes, about five thousand, all archers and riding upon large gnats. To these succeeded the Aerocoraces, light infantry, but remarkably brave and useful warriors, for they threw out of slings exceeding large radishes, which whoever was struck by died immediately, a most horrid stench exhaling from the wound. They are said indeed to dip their arrows in a poisonous kind of mallow. Behind these stood ten thousand columnistes, heavy-armed soldiers who fight hand to hand so called because they use shields made of mushrooms and spears of the stalks of asparagus near them were placed the cinnabellani about five thousand who were sent by the inhabitants of sirius these were men with dogs heads and mounted upon winged acorns some of their forces did not arrive in time amongst whom there were to have been some slingers from the milky way together with the nephilocentauri they indeed came when the first battle was over, and I wish they had never come at all. The slingers did not appear, which they say, so enraged Phaeton, that he set their city on fire. Thus prepared, the enemy began the attack, the signal being given and the asses braying on each side, for such are the trumpeters they make use of on these occasions, the left wing of Heliots, unable to sustain the onset of our hippogypi, soon gave way, and we pursued them with great slaughter. Their right wing, however, overcame our left. The aeroconopes, falling upon us with astonishing force, and advancing even to our infantry, by their assistance we recovered, and they now began to retreat, when they found the left wing had been beaten. The defeat then becoming general, many of them were taken prisoners and many slain. The blood flowed in such abundance that the clouds were tinged with it and looked red, just as they appear to us at sunset. From thence it distilled through upon the earth. Some such thing, I suppose, happened formerly amongst the gods, which made Homer believe that Jove rained blood at the death of Sarpedon. When we returned from our pursuit of the enemy, we set up two trophies, one on account of the infantry engagement in the spider's web, and another in the clouds for our battle in the air. Thus prosperously everything went on. When our spies informed us that the Nephilocentaurs, who should have been with Phaeton before the battle, were just arrived, they made, indeed, as they approached towards us, a most formidable appearance, being half-winged horses and half-men, the men from the waist upwards about as big as the Rhodian Colossus, and the horses of the size of a common ship of burthen. I have not mentioned the number of them which was really so great that it would appear incredible. They were commanded by Sagittarius from the Zodiac. As soon as they learned that their friends had been defeated, they sent a message to Phaeton to call him back, whilst they put their forces into order of battle, and immediately fell upon the Selenites, who were unprepared to resist them, being all employed in the division of the spoil. They soon put them to flight, pursued the king quite to his own city, and slew the greatest part of his birds. 
They then tore down the trophies, ran over all the field woven by the spiders, and seized me and two of my companions. Phaeton, at length, coming up, they raised their trophies for themselves. As for us, we were carried that very day to the palace of the sun, our hands bound behind us by a cord of the spider's web. The conquerors determined not to besiege the city of the moon, but when they returned home resolved to build a wall between them and the sun, that his rays might not shine upon it. This wall was double and made of thick clouds, so that the moon was always eclipsed, and in perpetual darkness. Endymion, sorely distressed at these calamities, sent an embassy, humbly beseeching them to pull down the wall, and not to leave him in utter darkness, promising to pay them tribute, to assist them with his forces, and never more to rebel. He sent hostages withal. Phaeton called two councils on the affair, at the first of which they were all inexorable, but at the second changed their opinion. A treaty at length was agreed to on these conditions. The Heliots and their allies on one part make the following agreement with the Selenites and their allies on the other, that the Heliots shall demolish the wall now erected between them, that they shall make no eruptions into the territories of the moon, and restore the prisoners according to certain articles of ransom to be stipulated concerning them, that the Selenites shall permit all the other stars to enjoy their rights and privileges, that they shall never wage war with the Heliots, but assist them whenever they shall be invaded, that the king of the Selenites shall pay to the king of the Heliots an annual tribute of ten thousand casks of dew, for the insurance of which he shall send ten thousand hostages, that they shall mutually send out a colony to the morning star, in which whoever of either nation shall think proper may become a member, that the treaty shall be inscribed on a column of amber in the midst of the air and on the borders of the two kingdoms. This treaty was sworn to on the part of the Heliots by Pyronides and Therites and Phlogius, and on the part of the Selenites by Nectar and Minerus and Polylumpus. Such was the peace made between them. The wall was immediately pulled down, and we were set at liberty. When we returned to the moon, our companions met and embraced us, shedding tears of joy, as did Endymion also. He entreated us to remain there, or to go along with the new colony. This I could by no means be persuaded to, but begged he would let us down into the sea. As he found I could not be prevailed on to stay after feasting us most nobly for seven days, he dismissed us. I will now tell you everything which I met with in the moon that was new and extraordinary. Amongst them, when a man grows old, he does not die, but dissolves into smoke and turns to air. They all eat the same food, which is frogs roasted on the ashes from a large fire. Of these they have plenty which fly about in the air. They get together over the coals, snuff up the scent of them, and this serves them for victuals. Their drink is air squeezed into a cup which produces a kind of dew. He who is quite bald is esteemed a beauty amongst them, for they abominate long hair, whereas in the comets it is looked upon as a perfection at least, so we heard from some strangers who were speaking of them, they have notwithstanding small beards, a little above the knee, no nails to their feet, and only one great toe. 
They have honey here which is extremely sharp, and when they exercise themselves, wash their bodies with milk. This, mixed with a little of their honey, makes excellent cheese. Their oil is extracted from onions, is very rich, and smells like ointment. Their wines, which are in great abundance, yield water, and the grape-stones are like hail. I imagine, indeed, that whenever the wind shakes their vines and bursts the grape, then comes down amongst us what we call hail. They make use of their belly, which they can open and shut as they please, as a kind of bag or pouch to put anything in they want. It has no liver or intestines, but is hairy and warm within, insomuch that newborn children, when they are cold, frequently creep into it. The garments of the rich amongst them are made of glass, but very soft. The poor have woven brass, which they have here in great abundance, and by pouring a little water over it, so manage as to cart it like wool. I am afraid to mention their eyes, lest from the incredibility of the thing you should not believe me. I must, however, inform you that they have eyes which they take in and out whenever they please, so that they can preserve them anywhere till occasion serves, and then make use of them. Many who have lost their own borrow from others, and there are several rich men who keep a stock of eyes by them. Their ears are made of the leaves of plain trees, except of those who spring, as I observe to you, from acorns. These alone have wooden ones. I saw likewise another very extraordinary thing in the king's palace, which was a looking-glass that is placed in a well not very deep. Whoever goes down into the well hears everything that is said upon earth, and if he looks into the glass, beholds all the cities and nations of the world, as plain as if he was close to them. I myself saw several of my friends there, and my whole native country. Whether they saw me also, I will not pretend to affirm. He who does not believe these things, whenever he goes there, will know that I have said nothing but what is true. To return to our voyage, we took our leave of the king and his friends, got on board our ship, and set sail. Endymion made me a present of two glass robes, two brass ones, and a whole coat of armor made of lupins, all of which I left in the whale's belly. He likewise sent with us a thousand hippogypi, who escorted us five hundred stadia. We sailed by several places, and at length reached the new colony of the Morning Star, where we landed and took in water. From thence we steered into the zodiac, leaving the sun on our left. We passed close by his territory, and would have gone ashore, many of our companions being very desirous of it but the wind would not permit us. We had a view, however, of that region, and perceived that it was green, fertile, and well watered, and abounding in everything necessary and agreeable. The Nephilocentaurs, who are mercenaries in the service of Phaeton, saw us and flew aboard our ship, but recollecting that we were included into the treaty, soon departed. The Hippogypi likewise took their leave of us, all the next night and day we continued our course downwards, and towards evening came upon Lysinopolis. This city lies between Pleiades and the Hyades, and a little below the Zodiac. We landed, but saw no men, only a number of lamps running to and fro in the market-place, and round the port, 
some little ones the poor, I suppose, of the place, others the rich and great among them, very large, light, and splendid. Every one had its habitation or candlestick to itself, and its own proper name as men have. We heard them speak, they offered us no injury, but invited us in the most hospitable manner. We were afraid, notwithstanding. Neither would any of us venture to take any food or sleep. The king's court is in the middle of the city. Here he sits all night, calls everyone by name, and, if they do not appear, condemns them to death for deserting their post. Their death is to be put out. We stood by and heard several of them plead their excuses for non-attendance. Here I found my own lamp, talked to him, and asked him how things went on at home. He told me everything that had happened. We stayed there one night, and next day, loosing our anchor, sailed off very near the clouds, where we saw and greatly admired the city of Nephilococcygia, but the wind would not permit us to land. Coronus, the son of Cotiphion, is king there. I remember Aristophanes, the poet, speaks of him, a man of wisdom and veracity, the truth of whose writings nobody can call in question. About three days after this we saw the ocean very plainly, but no land except those regions which hang in the air and which appeared to us all bright and fiery. The fourth day, about noon, the wind subsiding, we got safe down into the sea. No sooner did we touch the water, but we were beyond measure rejoiced. We immediately gave every man his supper, as much as we could afford, and afterwards jumped into the sea and swam, for it was quite calm and serene. It often happens that prosperity is the forerunner of the great misfortunes. We had sailed but two days in the sea, when early in the morning of the third at sunrise we beheld on a sudden several whales, and one amongst them, of a most enormous size, being not less than fifteen hundred stadia in length, he came up to us with his mouth wide open, disturbing the sea for a long way before him, the waves dashing round on every side. He whetted his teeth, which looked like so many long spears, and were white as ivory. We embraced and took leave of one another, expecting him every moment. He came near and swallowed us up at once, ship and all. He did not, however, crush us with his teeth, for the vessel luckily slipped through one of the interstices. When we were got in, for some time it was dark, and we could see nothing, but the whale happening to gape we beheld a large space big enough to hold a city with ten thousand men in it. In the middle were a great number of small fish, several animals cut in pieces, sails and anchors of ships, men's bones and all kinds of merchandise. There was likewise a good quantity of land and hills, which seemed to have been formed of the mud which he had swallowed. There was also a wood, with all sorts of trees in it, herbs of every kind. Everything, in short, seemed to vegetate. The extent of this might be about two hundred and forty stadia. We saw also several seabirds, gulls, and kingfishers making their nests in the branches. At our first arrival in these regions we could not help shedding tears. In a little time, however, I roused my companions, and we repaired our vessel, after which we sat down to supper on what the place afforded. Fish of all kinds we had here in plenty, 
and the remainder of the water which we brought with us from the morning star. When we got up the next day, as often as the whale gaped, we could see mountains and islands, sometimes only the sky, and plainly perceived by our motion that he travelled through the sea at a great rate, and seemed to visit every part of it. At length, when our abode became familiar to us, I took with me seven of my companions, and advanced into the wood in order to see everything I could possibly. We had not gone above five stadia before we met with a temple dedicated to Neptune, as we learned by the inscription on it, and a little farther on several sepulchres, monumental stones, and a fountain of clear water. We heard the barking of a dog, and seeing smoke at some distance from us, concluded there must be some habitation not far off. We got on as fast as we could, and saw an old man and a boy very busy in cultivating a little garden, and watering it from a fountain. We were both pleased and terrified at the sight, and they, as you may suppose, on their part not less affected, stood fixed in astonishment and could not speak. After some time, however, "'Who are you?' said the old man. "'And whence come ye? Are you demons of the sea, or unfortunate men like ourselves? For such we are, born and bred on land, though now inhabitants of another element, swimming along with this great creature who carries us about with him, not knowing what is to become of us, or whether we are alive or dead.' To which I replied, we, father, are men as you are, and but just arrived here, being swallowed up together with our ship but three days ago. We came this way to see what the wood produced, for it seemed large and full of trees. Some good genius led us toward you, and we have the happiness to find we are not the only poor creatures shut up in this great monster. But give us an account of your adventures. Let us know who you are and how you came here." He would not, however, tell us anything himself, or ask us any questions, till he had performed the rites of hospitality. He took us into his house, therefore, where he had got beds, and made everything very commodious. Here he presented us with herbs, fruit, fish, and wine, and when we were satisfied, began to inquire into our history. When I acquainted him with everything that had happened to us, the storm we met with, our adventures in the island, our sailing through the air, the war, and so on, from our first setting out even to our descent into the whale's belly. He expressed his astonishment at what had befallen us, and then told us his own story, which was as follows. Strangers, said he, I am a Cyprian by birth, and left my country to merchandise with this youth, who is my son, and several servants. We sailed to Italy with goods of various kinds, some of which you may perhaps have seen in the mouth of the whale. We came as far as Sicily with a prosperous gale, when a violent tempest arose, and we were tossed about in the ocean for three days, where we were swallowed up, men, ship, and all, by the whale, only we two remaining alive. After burying our companions we built a temple to Neptune, and here we have lived ever since, cultivating our little garden, raising herbs and eating fish and fruit. The wood, as you see, is very large and produces many vines, from which we have excellent wine, 
there is likewise a fountain which perhaps you have observed of fresh and very cold water we make our bed of leaves have fuel sufficient and catch a great many birds and live fish getting out upon the gills of the whale there we wash ourselves when we please there is a salt lake about twenty stadia round which produces fish of all kinds and where we row about in a little boat which we built on purpose it is now seven and twenty years since we were swallowed up everything here indeed is very tolerable except our neighbors who are disagreeable troublesome savage and unsociable and there are more replied i besides ourselves in the whale a great many said he and those very unhospitable and of a most horrible appearance towards the tail on the western parts of the wood live the terichines a people with eels eyes and faces like crabs bold warlike and that live upon raw flesh on the other side at the right-hand wall are the tritonomendites in their upper parts men and in the lower resembling weasels on the left are carcinocheres and the thinocelphia who have entered into a league offensive and defensive with each other the middle part is occupied by the pogurata and the cyropodes a warlike nation and remarkably swift-footed the eastern parts near the whale's mouth being washed by the sea are most of them uninhabited i have some of these however on condition of paying an annual tribute to cyropodes of five hundred oysters such is the situation of this country our difficulty is how to oppose so many people and find sustenance for ourselves how many may there be said i more than a thousand said he and what are their arms nothing replied he but fish bones then said i we had best go to war with them for we have arms and they none if we conquer them we shall live without fear for the future this was immediately agreed upon and as soon as we returned to our ship we began to prepare the cause of the war was to be the non-payment of the tribute which was just now becoming due they sent to demand it we returned a contemptuous answer to the messengers the cyropodes and pogurata were both highly enraged and immediately fell upon synthrus for that was the old man's name in a most violent manner we expecting to be attacked sent out a detachment of five and twenty men with orders to lie concealed till the enemy was passed and then to rise upon them which they did and cut off their rear we in the meantime being likewise five and twenty in number with the old man and his son waited their coming up met and engaged them with no little danger till at length they fled and we pursued them even into their trenches of the enemy there fell an hundred and twenty we lost only one our pilot who was run through by the rib of a mullet that day and the night after it we remained on the field of battle and erected the dried backbone of a dolphin as a trophy next day some other forces who had heard of the engagement arrived and made head against us the tarichanes under the command of palamus in the right wing the thinocephali on the left and the carcinocheres in the middle 
the Tritonomendites remained neutral, not choosing to assist either party. We came round upon all the rest by the temple of Neptune, and with a hideous cry rushed upon them. As they were unarmed, we soon put them to flight, pursued them into the wood, and took possession of their territory. They sent ambassadors a little while after to take away their dead and propose terms of peace, but we would hear of no treaty, and attacking them the next day obtained a complete victory, and cut them all off except Tritonomendites, who, informed of what had passed, ran away up to the whale's gills, and from thence threw themselves into the sea. The country being now cleared of all enemies, we rambled through it, and from that time remained without fear, used what exercise we pleased, went a-hunting, pruned our vines, gathered our fruit, and lived, in short, in every respect like men put together in a large prison, which there was no escaping from, but where they enjoy everything they can wish for in ease and freedom. Such was our way of life for a year and eight months. On the fifteenth day of the ninth month, about the second opening of the whale's mouth, for this he did once every hour, and by that we calculated our time, we were surprised by a sudden noise, like the clash of oars. Being greatly alarmed, we crept up into the whale's mouth, where, standing between his teeth, we beheld one of the most astonishing spectacles that was ever seen, men of an immense size, each of them not less than half a stadium in length, sailing on islands like boats. I know what I am saying is incredible. I shall proceed notwithstanding. These islands were long, but not very high, and about a hundred stadia in circumference. There were about eight and twenty of these men in each of them, besides the rowers on the sides, who rowed with large cypresses, with their branches and leaves on. In the stern stood a pilot raised on an eminence and guiding a brazen helm. On the forecastle were forty immense creatures resembling men, except in their hair, which was all a flame of fire, so that they had no occasion for helmets. These were armed and fought most furiously. The wind rushing in upon the wood, which was in every one of them, swelled it like a sail, and drove them on according to the pilot's direction. And thus, like so many long ships, the islands, by the assistance of the oars, also moved with great velocity. At first we saw only two or three, but afterwards there appeared above six hundred of them, which immediately engaged. Many were knocked to pieces by running against each other, and many sunk. Others were wedged in close together, and not able to get asunder, fought desperately. Those who were near the prows showed the greatest alacrity, boarding each other's ships and making terrible havoc. None, however, were taken prisoners. For grappling irons they made use of large sharks chained together, who laid hold of the wood and kept the island from moving. They threw oysters at one another, one of which would have filled a wagon, and sponges of an acre long. Iliosuntaris was admiral of one of the fleets, and Thalassopates of the other. They had quarrelled, it seems, about some booty. Thalassopates, as it was reported, having driven away a large number of dolphins belonging to Elocentaurus, this we picked up from their own discourse, when we heard them mention the names of their commanders. 
At length the forces of Heliocentaurus prevailed, and sunk about a hundred and fifty of the islands of the enemy, and taking three more with the men in them. The rest took to their oars and fled. The conquerors pursued them a little way, and in the evening returned to the wreck, seizing the remainder of the enemy's vessels, and getting back some of their own, for they had themselves lost no less than fourscore islands in the engagement. They erected a trophy for this victory, hanging one of the conquered islands on the head of the whale, which they fastened their hawsers to, and casting anchor close to him, for they had anchors immensely large and strong, spent the night there. In the morning, after they had returned thanks and sacrificed on the back of the whale, they buried their dead, sung their eopeons, and sailed off. Such was the battle of the islands. End of section 4